Folks, this episode has some connection gap problems. Our guest today has some great information, and you're going to hear almost all of it. But in a few cases, instead of him, you'll have to deal with just me. Often, I feel like there's no single person who would not benefit by having more strength and working out with weights. CPR. It's what happens after someone dies as a last-ditch, high-intensity effort. Unlike the movies, it usually fails. What if we used that drive, while we're still alive, to heal ourselves? Welcome to CPR for Life, where we help you understand how to reclaim your health by changing your everyday life. I'm Dr. Sagar Doshi, board certified in both lifestyle and emergency medicine, and certified health coach. Our health is like a vehicle. I've seen too many people, including my own family, crash their health because they don't realize they are the ones driving. This podcast aims to help each of us take the wheel and learn where to go. But even though these conversations are evidence-based, they are just for your education. So please talk with your physician before making changes. Hello, everyone. Today, we're going to do something a little different for this podcast. I've been hearing from people, and it seems like many folks have trouble with the actual initiation of a physical activity program. And on top of that, they're a bit intimidated by it, especially when it comes to resistance training or strength training. We had a prior episode with Dr. Franklin, a renowned exercise physiologist, and he thought that cardio was priority number one and strength was priority number two. But even he had trouble doing the latter. So I've brought someone in that I've known for many years and who has spent the last 14 years helping people of all walks improve physical performance. His name's Kevin Corey, and he owns the boutique gym in Westville, Ohio, known as Experience Fitness. He's also a personal trainer. Thanks for being here today. Thank you, Sagar. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Of course. First off, I'd like to ask people, what is your definition of health? Yeah, so I think of health as various biomarkers, various health biomarkers, cholesterol, blood pressure, A1C, your risk for diseases, but also I think of it as strength and muscle mass as well. We've all heard about blood pressure, cholesterol. These are risk factors for disease, for dying early. But when it comes to strength, that's a really talked about subject. If you, as we all age, we all lose strength and muscle mass unless we intervene with strength training. And as you age, you lose muscle mass. You also lose bone density. You lose the ability to control your body as well. So having more muscle mm. allows you to move your body easier. It allows you to have denser bones. So should you actually ever fall, you may not fracture your femur or your hip. Uh, you may just merely get a, a bruise, um, hopefully. Um, so strength is one of those things I'm very passionate about that, that people should be doing more often. I feel like there's no single person who would not benefit by having more strength and working out with weights. Yeah. And that's a really good point. We don't typically talk about strength. Anytime a person talks about exercise, the number one thing they're talking about is walking or running, possibly bicycling, maybe even swimming. And it's hardly ever talked about resistance. Uh, that's an interesting take on things. So I got to ask you, how did that become a focus of yours? What's the role of fitness in your life? And then how did that transition into bringing that passion to other people? Yeah, yeah. I grew up in a household where fitness was a high priority. Uh, my mother stayed in shape. My father was a bodybuilder. He was the amateur bodybuilder here in Ohio. And I kind of threw osmosis, if you will, 
uh, saw what he did, was exposed to the gym environment. He was also a NPC bodybuilding judge. So as a young man, I, young boy, uh, I went to a lot of shows with him and was very much influenced by that kind of lifestyle. I saw these people lifting weights. They looked very strong. Uh, they could do a lot of impressive feats. So that's how I got into this. I grew up with it. Um, and as I got older and older, I had a more of an appreciation of strength training, working out, not just lifting weights, but working out health and fitness. And I went to college, went to Ohio university, had a degree in it and did that for about five or six years. It, it was fine, but I quickly grew tired of the it industry and I was given an opportunity to become a personal trainer part-time and I decided to take the plunge. So I decided to do that and I really discovered my passion, if you will. So I became a full-time personal trainer about 14 years ago. Have you seen people be able to start from scratch and really make a difference in their lives with the training that you help them with? Absolutely. It's a very common thing. A lot of people will come in and say, Hey, uh, Kevin, I've never worked out before exercised. If I did work out or train, it was maybe when I was in high school, when I was young, and that may have been 10, 15, 20 years ago. My role as a trainer is to introduce you to exercise, how to do it properly, how to do it safely, and also to give you expectations as to what you can, can expect to see in the future. Can you gain five pounds of muscle, 10 pounds of muscle? Can you improve your VO2 max, your cardiovascular health, all those kind of things. So yeah, it's very common to see somebody come in and every single week when they start training, they start to gain strength, their endurance improves, their sense of well-being improves. It's fantastic to always hear, hey, I can go up and down stairs easier than what I could before. My knees don't hurt as bad. Or, hey, I can pick up the groceries. I can do things I couldn't do before. What many people would just take for granted, these everyday movements of get to my second floor or take the grocers in with fewer trips. Absolutely. And as we all age, certain things happen. Sarcopenia is a big issue. Sarcopenia is age-related muscle loss. And sarcopenia happens to everybody unless you're intervening with some sort of exercise routine. But sarcopenia happens around the age of 35 for most people. You hit 35, most people are not exercising routinely or doing the right kind of exercise. And you'll start to see your muscle mass decline slightly each and every year. It's not a dramatic decrease. You won't lose 10 pounds of muscle per year, uh, but you'll lose a little bit of muscle each and every year for decades. And unless you intervene with some sort of street training routine, uh, you're going to lose muscle, which means that you're going to lose mobility. Uh, you're going to lose the ability to move around, do things easier. And frankly, the more muscle you have, the easier things are hard to do. If you have more muscle, you have more strength. You can go up and down stairs easier, pick things up easier. And also in general, have more endurance as well. More what I call strength endurance. What's an example of strength endurance? So let's say that you uh, work in a building. Let's say that you uh, work on the third floor. So I wouldn't per se call that tremendous amount of cardio, but you might find if you're not in very good shape that even going up to the second floor gets you out of wind. You're huffing and puffing on a breath. Uh, if you do strength training and some cardiovascular work, you can uh, easily improve those parameters. So you can go up to the third floor much easier, be less winded, uh, less huffing and puffing. I think most people think of endurance as simply, hey, I can or cannot do a half marathon or I can or cannot do a full marathon. But uh, things like going up and down stairs, uh, if you are huffing and puffing, that can be improved and it's not considered, you know, long endurance exercise. It's not considered long endurance, steady state motion. It's simply, I'm going from here to there and it takes 30 seconds, two minutes, 
that can be improved quite easily with string training. Okay. Yeah. I think people oftentimes would think of, oh, if I want to go up the stairs easier, I need to start a walking program. I think they would rarely consider I need to start some sort of resistance program. And you mentioned that you said people are doing the wrong kind of exercise. What do you mean by that? Yeah. Exercise is a very broad term. Exercise can mean many, many, many different things. It could be, it depends on who you are too. Somebody who's really into yoga may say, hey, exercise really, no, it's all about yoga uh, and everything else is fine. But yoga is the primary thing. Or if you're really into marathon running, that person can say, hey, running is the de facto best way to exercise. I take a different kind of perspective. They can all be very beneficial, but you have to ask yourself, what's the most fundamental, most important thing that you can do with your time and effort that can make the biggest benefit to your health? And in my opinion, it's strength training. Um, cardiovascular work, I just call it cardio. You know, going outside running, it's fantastic. Uh, going outside, taking a walk, fantastic. You can do it easily. Put your pair of shoes on and go outside and go for a jog or a walk. But doing that kind of exercise only addresses certain components of health and fitness. Yes, you're going to remember your A1C levels, probably. Uh, it'll probably improve your blood pressure slightly, but it does nothing to address strength or muscle mass. Uh, and as a matter of fact, if you do cardio too much, you can actually go into a state where you're eating muscle tissue. They call it catabolism, where you're doing too much and you start to lose muscle. It doesn't happen all the time, but if somebody does a lot of cardiovascular work and or they're also cutting calories quite a bit, for instance, trying to lose weight, that's a very common thing that I see. Hey, I want to lose weight. Um, I'm doing a lot of cardio. I'm doing the Stairmaster. I'm jogging quite a bit and I'm cutting calories. That person's in a very real scenario of losing weight, but also losing muscle mass as well. And muscle mass, like I've said before, moves your skeleton. Muscle moves you, uh, gives you ability to produce force. So strength training is very, very important. If done properly, you can do strength training where you get the benefits of that and also cardiovascular work as well. I would argue strength training should be done with a purpose in mind. But if somebody's trying to get cardio and strength training done together, you can do it that way. You can do circuit training. You could go in and do a moderately hard set of bench press, for instance, and then go right to barbell squats and then go right to a pull down machine. And that's going to keep your heart rate up quite high and address muscle mass and strength. Okay. Now you're mentioning machines. Uh, most people don't have a gym. So how does someone who has low physical reserves to begin with, maybe they don't exercise, maybe they've been doing the wrong kind of exercise. And now they're thinking, all right, how do I get started? I don't have bench press. I don't have a, any kind of machine. What's safe for me to do and how do I actually do it? Yeah, and that's a common thing too, to say, hey, I don't have a gym close by or the gym is 120 bucks a month. It's crazy. Those kind of questions I get asked every so often. You can do a lot of stuff at home if you know what to do. And kind of, I think the big hurdle for most people is they just don't know what to do, right? It's a, a science if you want it, unless you know a lot about it, it's hard to really figure out a program to do that's effective. If somebody's at home, they could do push-ups. Now, I know the push-ups can be very, very effective, but doing a full-range push-up where you're uh, going all the way down to the floor with your chest and back up can be pretty challenging. So I would say, hey, if you can't do a full-range push-up with good form, do a half rep. You know, do a half rep until you build your strength. And then as you build more and more strength, then try to do a full-range push-up. Um, legs, you could do a bodyweight squat. So you're trying to emulate with your legs a basically a squatting motion. So envision that you have a chair behind you and that you're standing up 
and then you're trying to sit back into that chair. That's a very good way to emulate a bodyweight squat. If that's too hard, you could do half reps. If it's too easy, you could do more reps. You could go lower. For back and bicep work, you could try doing chin-ups. Chin-ups can be quite challenging. So you have to find different modalities, like perhaps uh, buying bands. Bands are very common tool. Essentially, a, a big, huge rubber band is what they are. And they come in different tensions. So if you can't do a chin-up, what you can do is perhaps tie a band around some sort of um, static thing in your house. Something that won't move. A chair is not a good idea. <laughs> that's important. You know, something that's, that yeah. it cannot move. Because once you pull on the band, it's going to probably uh, pull whatever you have attached to it. So make sure it's quite heavy. And then you could do some sort of bent over row motion, some sort of pulling motion. But yeah, with bands and your own body weight, you can get a very good workout. And it depends on what you're trying to achieve. If you're get, just getting into health and fitness, absolutely. Once you become more and more advanced, it becomes a bit more challenging to use the same modalities. But you can absolutely get a good workout at home. Yeah. So who, if people do need help and they want to go and say, okay, uh, you sound like you might know what you're talking about. Maybe I should go see somebody who's a trainer. How do they pick who they should be seeing? There's all sorts of titles out there. There's a physical therapist. There's an exercise physiologist. There's personal trainers. There's random person on YouTube. And there's sure. possibly sure. other specialists. What, who are the different options? And then who should actually be seeing the various different options? Yeah, yeah to kind of cover the, the gamut there. So physical therapists, I'm sure the law differs by state, but for the most part, you have to have a, a physician refer you to a PT, a physical therapist. Uh, I'm sure some states you don't have to, but in general, what you're doing is you're going to your primary care doctor saying, hey doc, my shoulder hurts really bad. I, I slipped and fell. Um, I threw a baseball and my shoulders just kill me. It's not getting better. My lower back hurts. My knee hurts, something to that effect. And usually they would say, hey, let's send you off to a physical therapist first and let them evaluate you, see what's going on and see if we can fix you before anything else goes on. Um, physical therapists are fantastic with what they do as far as fixing injuries, trying to rehab injuries. They're what I would call for sure a specialist. They're, like I said, they're very good at what they do, but they're not somebody you'd go to for overall physical training. Uh, you walk in and they're like, hey, you know, does your shoulder hurt, elbow hurt, knee hurt? If not, then why are you here? Kind of thing. Uh, and, and then the idea is that we've taken care of you and then you've healed up, you know, four weeks, eight weeks, 16 weeks. Great. And uh, goodbye, if you will. Exercise physiologists are a bit more rare. They are still around. But they tend to deal with people who have special needs with exercise. So what I mean by that would be, hey, I just had a heart attack four months ago. I don't know if I can train. And if I can train, I was told I should exercise, but I was told if I do train to take it easy, I don't know what that means. Who do I go to for that? Or I just had a complete knee replacement surgery, went to the PT, I'm rehabbed, but I still don't really know how to approach how I train my legs. Uh, that would be the realm of an exercise physiologist. You may have to have a referral to that person as well. They're considered a medical uh, person. Whereas a, a personal trainer would be a generalist. That would be somebody that you'd go to for overall health and fitness. Hey, I want to get in better shape. I feel tired, lethargic. I want to lose some weight. I want to get stronger. Uh, that would be the realm of a personal trainer. How do you pick a personal trainer? Yes. There are, yeah, there, there are certifications. Many companies offer them. Uh, you can argue that some are much better than others. Some companies, um, and keep in mind, none are legal bodies, if you will. They are private companies who, mm. who have decided to accredit you, if you will, if you pay for a course and pass their course. Um, some 
bodies. There's no professional society of personal trainers. No. You might find a company that says that. <laughs> I can create one right now saying that exact same title. But yeah, there's no kind of bond. Here's one of those parts that evaporated from the recording. Kevin was saying that not everyone even needs trainers. And if that's the case, start out light. Start light to make sure that you're safe and they keep showing up to your workouts and minimize any physical or mental hesitation. Additionally, he talked about needing to vet personal trainers because the certifications can be all over the place and include fly-by-night courses. He recommends asking plenty of questions about the trainer's experience and how they would tailor an exercise regimen for you specifically. He also suggests meeting them in person and doing a trial with them before signing anything. So it sounds like what you're saying is that there is a certain degree of knowledge that a trainer has to have and probably continuing knowledge because you mentioned evidence, scientific evidence for things and for against things. So how can a person tell if their trainer is staying up to date and how do you personally stay up to date? Yeah, let me address that by kind of first saying that it's very important to look at the science out there. There's a lot of science, a lot of studies being done. In a given month, there are probably, that I'm aware of anyway, three to six really well-made studies that come out each month shedding light on different things that we've always been had questions about. Uh, there are various journals that publish studies, and there are a lot of people, I think more so than ever, that are in the field conducting studies. In the field of personal training, it can be very tempting to close yourself off from that and tell yourself it's these are clinicians. They... They're in their ivory tower. They're not really lifting weights. What do they know? They're just in labs doing studies. Uh, while I can understand that perspective, uh, it can be argued that nowadays there are a lot of people uh, in academia who are clinicians, but also walk the walk. Uh, people that also lift weights, they're passionate about weights, but also have their degrees in science. So I think we're at this really cool point in time where we have gym rats who are also clinicians and doing studies, which is fantastic. Gym rats um, that went to get their doctorates. Yes. Yeah. It, it wasn't that long ago. I would say 15, 20 years ago, it would be pretty common to see a study done on, let's say, elite athletes. Um, and the study would be done, let's say, on uh, high-level Olympic rowers. And if uh, what would happen if we took this calcium carbonate and increased it to maybe see if we can buffer the acidity? Like really odd esoteric thing that, that doesn't apply to anybody. A, the average person is not an elite Olympic rower. That's a huge athletic hurdle to even hit. That's very admirable. And then also weird little things like that, just uh, trying to buffer city, just don't help the average person. And now we're in the realm of, hey, what works better? Five sets or 10 sets of bench press. What works better? Regular reps or leg extension or leg press. So a lot of very valid, uh, fascinating research coming out. done really well too. So I look at a lot of the journals and look at a lot of researchers and uh, try to follow the researchers online. A lot of these people have uh, Twitter accounts, X accounts, uh, Instagram accounts, and they'll say, hey, I have a study coming out. Here it is. It's PubMed. It's free. It's open source. Check it out. And the fantastic thing about that is that you don't have to rely upon somebody else to tell you what the study means. That's a problem I have nowadays where so many people get their study information from the news. And the news is are blurbs. I mean, they're five, 10 second blurbs. Hey, this new thing has been found to increase longevity. Next story. It's like, what, what like, how does it work? How, all these various questions come up that you can't answer on a news station, on Twitter, 
So a lot of these studies are done by people that, that will elaborate. They'll say, hey, I did the study. I was one of the co-authors, and here's what the study meant. So you can really get the, the information right from the horse's mouth, if you will, um, versus having to rely upon people to decipher the studies for you. Because some of the studies can be very elaborate and, and hard to read, frankly. Some studies I've seen are up to 40, 50 pages long. Um, so it always helps to have the actual researcher in question tell you straight up, hey, here's what this means. Sure. And, and then there's one. always the risk of bias coming from a lead author that really wants you to think that their work is very meaningful and important. Yes. But then, so, so there's a flip side. Yeah. And the best kind of data really is this. The best kind of data is, hey, we have a study that came out. It seems to be well done. And it shows this. And ideally, what will happen is other researchers will say, hey, fascinating. Let's double check that study. So let's go ahead and see if we can replicate it. So let's go ahead and do that study ourselves. And the best kind of data would be two or three studies showing the same exact result. Uh, well, you, in science, I think you can never really truly say what's absolutely true and false. With study, you can say, hey, we have all this evidence pointing us to this direction. It appears that this is true. Things could change. When you have mounting data just piling up, suggesting that one thing is true, then you have to, as a trainer, look at that and say, let's go with this. A fantastic example that, that still blows people's minds to this day would be the rep range issue uh, for decades for decades the, the issue's been, been thought of as this well i want to get stronger i don't really care about building a whole lot of muscle or getting toned uh what how many reps should i do okay do you know three to six and that'll build strength well okay what well, what about if i want to build muscle if i want to um if i'm concerned about hypertrophy would be the term for building bigger muscle what should i do now well, okay well six to fifteen okay uh, what if i want to just kind of tone up and whatever tone up means, it's a very vague term, but I hear it a lot. Uh, okay, you should be doing 12 to 20 reps. We now know those are all just silly recommendations. Right now we have several studies showing that anything from about three reps up to about 40 reps can all do the same thing for you. So whether you're trying to get stronger, build muscle, or what have you, three to 40 reps all do the same thing. And you can get into the weeds as to, you know, doing lower or higher reps, what that might kind of help with a bit more, but... We know there's no such thing as a rep paradigm that you have to fit in to gain certain things. You want to get bigger and stronger, five reps, 10 reps, 15 reps, 20 reps. doesn't really matter. Now, with that being said, I would say, what is your unique situation? If you have tendonitis in your elbow, I'm not going to have you do crazy heavy weight because typically crazy heavy weight on a bench press on the elbow is going to aggravate your elbow tendinopathy. Uh, and we want to heal that up. So you're usually better off doing lighter weights for higher reps. Uh, if you come to me and say, Kevin, I want to do a powerlifting show in five months, we have to go heavy. Because a powerlifting show, you have to demonstrate your ability to do a one rep max. And practicing 20 reps, 25 reps will build muscle and strength, but you need to display that efficacy on a bench press with big heavy weight for one rep. And you have to practice that way. I guess I would say it's comparable to saying, hey, I want to run a marathon, but I only want to practice on a treadmill. Bad idea. You need to go outside and run on the road and do what your body would experience to perform in that event. This is leading into my next question, which is how does somebody decide for themselves or how do you go about deciding for other people, both what their regimen should be, how they should structure their workouts? Yeah, it's very unique, but also a little not unique. My perspective is this to make yourself better, healthier, perform better, just everything. You need to make your whole body stronger. I'll occasionally get people that will come in and say, well, no, 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 I don't want to work on my legs. They're too big. 
or I don't want to work on my arms for whatever reason. Uh, but I always highly suggest to clients to work the entire body. You are a whole individual. You're a whole unit. And the data, at least anecdotal data, seems to suggest that you're going to get much better results training your whole body and not just upper body, lower body. Things should be individualized. As a trainer, you have to look at that person and what they want. Um, like I was saying, I always try to stress to people that you'll get the best results training the entire body. But everything should be designed for your goals. And here's another spot where his voice went poof. Essentially, he talked about a workout template being geared to what kind of benefits a person is seeking. For example, taking groceries to their third floor walk-up. And doing this while protecting injured areas. Also, he recommended that people approach starting a workout plan like getting a suntan. This did not make sense to me right away, as I've never tried to get a suntan. Apparently, people give themselves increasing doses of time in the sun until they've roasted just the right amount. Those graduated levels of injury produce the adaptation and change of darker skin. A workout injures the muscle and produces strength. Yeah. So it sounds like that's a really good analogy for how somebody should be approaching building up their stamina and their workout routine. Treat it like a suntan, which is give it a little bit of injury and wait and see how it goes and then decide if that's the right level for you or you need more injury. And this, I just have to take a moment and say, you know what? Don't go get suntans. Use sunblock. The sun can be damaging. Skin cancer is real. Take precautions. There are lotions that can make you darker. <laughs> but otherwise, it's a there good go. analogy. <laughs> yeah, it's a very, I think, kind of real-world analogy that people can understand really quick. Because exercises, uh, most people don't really realize what's going on to the muscles. Am I really hurting the muscle? What's going on? Uh, do I have to damage it? But they understand a sun can pretty quick. They understand, hey, when I was five or six, I was outside for the whole day. And oh my goodness, I got burned. That didn't feel good. So it's kind of the same thing. You're applying a stimulus to the body, a novel stimulus. And the body's reaction is not just to, hey, make you more buff and get you looking better. It's, hey, this is a threat. And we, we view this as a threat. Therefore, if we have the right thing, uh, proper nutrition, proper rest, adequate sleep, then we're going to make you adapt. But the term that you use a lot is, it's called the SAID principle. S-A-I-D, specific adaptation to impose demands. So if you go outside and run every day, four, five, six, seven miles, you get better and better at running. You don't get better and better at squatting. You're not getting better and better at bench pressing. You're getting better to the, the imposed demand that you're throwing at the body. Um, much like when you go in and, and do bench presses. If you bench press routinely, the body sees that and says, hey, we're going to make this tissue, not just the muscle, but the tendons, ligaments, stronger, better, more efficient, and you'll get better, better bench pressing. So the other question I want to address too is that's volume and intensity. Because you might say, hey, I, cool, I got it. Bench press, understand. Uh, leg press, squats, I should do those. But then the big question that arises next is how much? How many sets do I do? Do I do one set? Do I do 10, 15, five? And how much intensity? A good rule of thumb is definitely start out minimally. Start off with one or two sets. I've had clients that are brand new, they'll treat them with kid gloves and we'll do one easy set and I'll make it a point to be like, hey, look, we got to go easy. If you can do 20 reps, I'm going to stop you at nine or 10. And they'll call me or text me the next day saying, wow, I'm sore. So just imagine if you happen to go in on your first day of training and do a really hard set, go crazy hard uh, or do too much. You don't want to be super sore, but that's also the body's way of saying, hey, quit, stop. If you wake up and you're really, really sore and that soreness lasts for three, four, five days, that's your body's way of saying, nope, game over. You're not going to work out anymore. So if you're still sore, I'd recommend that you probably 
not train again. Uh, there's some debate as to what soreness really means. But your first few sessions, go in, do a few sets, one, two, three sets. Don't worry so much about how much weight you're pushing. Don't even worry about tracking that kind of stuff. Although you do want to definitely track your parameters. You want to track your strength, your repetition, so you're progressing. But don't be too worried about that your first couple of sessions. Really, it's all about getting you acclimated to what you're doing. You know, you're on the leg press machine. I'm assuming it's a brand new machine to you. And how do you set it up? What's it feel like? Um, you're doing bench press. How's that barbell feel in your hand? You just get that motion down. And more or less, just get meek down, if you will, and comfort your first few sessions. Um, do a few reps. The, the other issue that, that we have to draw um, in strength training is the level of intensity. Um, there have been different camps historically that profess different levels of intensity. Some people say, look, you've got to train in a Herculean fashion. You've got to go in and have combat every time. It's a battle. You're prone your war paint and go in and play some Metallica every time. The, the data is pretty clear nowadays. You want to take every set that you do, not as a beginner, but after a few weeks to a few months, but you want to take every set that you do to a moderate level of intensity. And what I mean by that is if I put a weight in your hands, let's just say bench press, uh, you become proficient with the barbell, you know how to move the weight properly, safe. And if I give you a certain weight and I say, hey, you know, Kevin, uh, how many reps can you do with this? 10. No, Kevin, Kevin, for real, like how many reps can you do? Well, maybe 11. Like, You've got to really be able to coax out the person how many reps they can really get to. And as a beginner and as a novice, you really don't know. A lot of people will say, hey, I can do 10 reps. But then when you start watching their cadence, how they execute the exercise, you can tell really quick, they have 15 or 20. So as a beginner, you're probably going to definitely underestimate what you can do. And that's fine. As time goes on, you'll be able to get a much better picture of what you can truly do with weight. The big issue is how hard do you have to take each set? Um, there's a very good consensus that right now, if you train too easily and stop too short, you'll see very few results. In other words, if Kevin can do 20 reps on the bench press with a certain weight and Kevin does five or six reps, most people would agree that was a wasted set. Now, I moved around, true. I got some blood in the area. I burned a few calories, but achieving the objective of getting stronger muscles, building stronger tendons and ligaments does not achieve that objective. Um, so if Kevin can do 20 reps with a certain weight, most people would agree that Kevin would have to do at least 15 to 20 reps to really tap into that magic, if you will, that makes the muscles change and grow. Uh, there's still a lot of debate as to what that level is. So the example I just gave was, hey, Kevin could do 20 reps with this weight. He can't do 21. He's only going to do 20. Uh, there's debate right now as to, well, should Kevin do 15? Should he do 18? Should he do 20? Should he take every set to 20 reps and train as hard as possible? Or should he do most of his sets at 15 or 16 and then do perhaps one final set at 20 reps? But what I'm referring here to is intensity. Does Kevin have to train at a super high intensity level, moderate? And we just don't really know. There have been theories in the past that I kind of ascribed to quite a bit. I was a big fan of the high intensity training modality where you do one set to complete muscle failure. And when I say muscle failure, Muscle failure refers to you doing an exercise and you cannot complete another rep in good form. So if you're doing like little partial reps, you're doing like little fast reps, sloppy reps, that doesn't count. But it's a rep done in proper form until you can't do anymore. And it's a very hard way to train. 
trained to true muscle failure is seems very, very taxing. It'll take a lot out of you. But I'll kind of just leave it at that is that right now we don't quite know how hard to push. I would say for the vast majority of people, you want to push hard. Um, push hard and then maybe go a little bit harder. Because most people, they're doing weight training, getting into it, just don't know how hard they can push and frankly have a lot more juice left in them than what they realize. Um, so your point is that, you know, presuming somebody has been cleared to work out to this level by their physician and said, hey, you don't have any problems with that people are so likely to underestimate their capacity that they need to push past what they think their limits are because probably their limits are further out than that. Very accurate. The, the muscles respond best to hard work. And another thing that I will hear sometimes hear people be, hey, I'm really worried about getting injured. And then when you talk to them, you find out they've had no prior injuries. That is a valid concern if you've hurt your rotator cuff many times, if you blown your back out, very valid concern. But most people will say, I could have done two or three more reps, but you know what? I was worried about getting hurt. And that's not a likely thing to happen. If you have good form, and form is another subject that you can get into as well, but if you have good form or performing the exercises in a proper fashion, you know, doing a positive part of the rep with control, doing the negative part of the rep a little bit slower than the positive through a full range of motion, then you can train super being hard. The pushing or pulling and then yeah. the negative being the bringing back. Yeah, yeah. So Relaxing. the term used nowadays would be positive or concentric. And if you're on a bench press, so envision you're on your back with a barbell in your hands. So the positive part of the rep would be the pushing up. If the bar's on your chest and you're pushing up and away from you, that would be the positive or the concentric. And the negative part of the rep or the eccentric part of the rep would be when it comes back down to you. So, uh, yeah. and the data shows right now that the negative part of the rep appears to be quite a bit more beneficial than the positive part of the rep. So uh, as another piece of advice, when you see people going into the gym and pushing really fast up and coming down equally fast on the way down or even dropping weights, uh, as far as building muscle, hypertrophy and strength, that's a bad idea. I'll always do the negative phase just a little bit slower than the positive. So if you're okay. doing a bench press and it takes you one second to push up, give me two seconds on the way down. And like I said, most of the data showed that most of the good things that happen to muscle, as far as the damage to it, happen on the negative part of the rep. And if you omit the negative part of the rep or do it in a very sloppy fashion, uh, you can argue you're probably going to be missing out on a lot of the benefits of weight training. Yeah. And this makes me think of the other side of this is if somebody is trying to do this on their own, how do they keep themselves safe? How do they know they're in good form? How do they know they don't go to a point where something's going to fall on their face? Yeah. So if somebody's going to train at home, I'm very, very picky about this. Have some sort of safety device at home. If you're going to be doing things like squats, bench presses, I'm a big fan of having a safety cage. So a safety cage or a squat rack. If you go to Amazon and type in squat rack, you'll see instantly what I mean. But it's basically a big cage that has pins that you can adjust. So should you do a bench press and not be able to push the weight back off your chest, the pins will catch you. So if you set the pins at about your chest height and you're pushing really hard, like you should, and all of a sudden you're like, oh man, this is a problem. I can't get the bar off my chest. Instead of having to pull the bar down onto your neck, uh, okay. flip the bar all, I, yeah, a lot of horrific stuff can happen. If you have a safety cage, the pins can be set. So if you get pinned by the bar, the actual metal rods will actually catch you. That may not make a whole lot of sense the way I articulated that, but uh, if you go even to YouTube and type in squat rack or safety cage, you'll see people using those. And it's, you set the pins at a certain height, and should you not be able to move the weight again, those metal pins will stop the weight from coming down further. Okay. So that's. I have to imagine most people aren't buying equipment 
when they're first getting started, but probably once they're into it. So they may probably just have their dumbbells. So that's not going to yep. get trapped on the sure. neck. And it's, and it's, <laughs> it might come down on their face. They're dumbbells, not careful. Yeah, dumbbells are a good modality too because you can't get pinned technically by having dumbbells. If you come down and can't raise them back up, you just drop them. So yeah, dumbbells are a great tool. As well. But yeah, as far as how you execute those, there are many, many different people out there professing to have great form and how to do certain things. I would frankly go to YouTube. I mean, if you don't have a personal trainer or somebody you can refer to, I would go to YouTube and just type in proper bench press form, proper barbell squat form. And while social media, YouTube have a lot of people that crank out a lot of crazy, insane videos, there are also some really well-respected people out there. There are PhDs and doctors and physiologists that have videos um, that you can refer to. It's just a matter of going through and and I can actually even give you a list. If you, I, I could give you a yeah, list of certain great. people, PTs, PhDs. Yeah. So if somebody has a question, they can go to that channel and quickly type in proper barbell platform and see a uh, doctor of physical therapy perform one. Yeah. Because that leads right into my next question, which is what are the common obstacles that people will face? And one of them is disinformation, misinformation, people just trying to make a buck. As I can't tell you how many people I've talked to and their way of getting information on what to do is just whatever pops up in their YouTube algorithm. Just whatever shows up. That must be accurate. Yeah. That, that's a very frustrating thing for me as a trainer because I get that a lot from clients. I'll occasionally get the, hey, I saw this video and what do you think about this? Or, hey, I saw this video. This person said that this is done what we're doing, Kevin, and we should be doing this instead. Um, like I said, there are some really talented people out there that make videos. PhDs, clinicians, physical therapists, professional trainers. But there are also many, many more people out there that are just cranking out footage and content just for clicks. People putting out misinformation. It's a great example. Hey, here's how you do a barbell squat. Okay, you should always go down super, super crazy low, butt to the ground kind of thing. Uh, and once you start looking at that, you'll see that kind of stuff. And the issue I have is, well, if you have a lower back injury, that's horrific, terrible to do. You never want to do that kind of thing. Oh, well, but I see it on YouTube all the time. So that's what they say good form is. Well, it's good form if you're 17, 18 and have a really healthy back. But if you're 45 or 50 and have had um, lumbar herniations or have stenosis, it's not a great idea. You're going to get hurt doing that kind of stuff. And it's why having, I think, a good trainer helps. Uh, otherwise, you're kind of left to fight with the wolves, if you will, to see what's the proper thing to do. Hey, I saw this video. I'm going to go to the gym and do it. And now I've gotten hurt or it doesn't work. So I think that's kind of where the realm of having a personal trainer does help. Go to YouTube, uh, check out some videos and see how logical it looks. Does the person have any kind of accreditations or are they just a YouTuber? Do they just make videos or are they a physician? Do they have a private practice on the side too? But it can be very hard to wade through those kind of things. I would say this, I would say whatever you see online on a social media in regards to exercise, take with a grain of salt, be very skeptical. That's something I think people kind of lack. Nowadays, when it comes to things they're not aware of, uh, they see something, that person's in great shape, therefore they must know what they're doing. And that could be true. They may know what they're doing, but if somebody's in great shape, super lean, uh, looks awesome, it doesn't mean they know what they're doing. And it doesn't mean they're not trying to sell you some sort of weird package of videos. Hey, here's my video on how to do this. But then, hey, next, my, my ebook, buy my nutrition program, buy my training program. And I've seen people that do that. They get hooked in and and of course, the programs they sell you are incredibly generic because they're selling them to 20,000 people. They can't mm -hmm. be individualized. But be very skeptical of what you see online. 
Um, and just ask yourself, this makes sense. And are people like me doing it? In other words, if you're 45, 50 or 60, do you see people your age doing that same thing? Does that make sense? Yeah. And like, I got to imagine that some of the people that are in these videos are just paid actors reading somebody else's script. Yeah, there are people who are very famous who are known as paid actors who really? uh, have the most ridiculous videos out there that have organizations behind them. It's a men, attractive women, fantastic shape. And unfortunately, most people will just say, hey, this person looks awesome. Therefore, they have to know what they're doing. And they're not aware there's a huge organization behind them selling videos and supplements and just so much stuff. What they say is what they might not even be doing themselves. So, interesting. yeah. And with that being said, you know, if somebody's 18 or 20 in great shape, it doesn't mean that you can necessarily do that. You know, mm -hmm. that person may be a full-time fitness model. Their, their entire livelihood is predicated on being in awesome shape and they're working out seven days a week, three hours at a time. Can you do that? But probably not. And I, I their 18-year-old physiology is different than yeah. anyone else's. <laughs> and, and, and does that kind of routine fit into your lifestyle? Of course not. You know, right. very few people have the time or resources to work out that many days. But if you're a professional, maybe you need to. Most people are not. So a few times a week with a basic, the fundamentals will do a lot for them. The fundamentals will do a lot. That's what it comes down to. Let's sum things up. Strength training is a great idea and everyone should do it. Strengthening muscle helps strengthen your bones and joints. It helps improve chronic disease, manage body weight. With cardiovascular disease, it can help lower blood pressure and make challenging activities easier. What this kind of training looks like depends on the person that's doing it. It could be doing squats in a cage or using your own body weight as resistance. People that work manual labor jobs should still do this too because it's not likely they're hitting everything like they need to. Whatever you do, make sure to work your whole body. Don't be like the character from the Lady in the Water movie that only trains the right side of his body. Parts of your body to hit can be thought of as upper and lower, back and abdomen, pushing and pulling, Pick something from each of these categories to do. Use good form to stay safe and give yourself at least a day to rest before working the same muscles again. Measure your progress by looking at the overall pattern over time, not the day-to-day. -day. Kevin says he's available for questions and he can be reached through experiencedfitness.com. If you live in the Westerville, Ohio area, you can just visit him in person. Hopefully, this sort of episode has been helpful. Tell me what you think about it by emailing contact at cprhealthclinic.com. In the meantime, if you want help changing your behaviors and routines to make an impact in your health and life, make an appointment with me at cprhealthclinic.com. Remember, the way you live can save your life.